Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Jude, verse 5, 6, and 7. And we'll probably get verse 5 done today. Uh, you know, when I started Jude five weeks ago, I had plans of it being four sermons. I was going to do a sermon on verses 1 and 2, a sermon on verses 3 and 4, and a sermon on verses 5 through, uh, well, 5 through 16, and then 117 through 25. And I thought, it'd be a nice little interim series between Hebrews and the Gospel of John. This may rival Hebrews, even though it's only one chapter long. Um, I made the mistake of uh, picking up a, a, a old Puritan commentary on it and uh, realizing that maybe there's more here than I first thought. Of course, Puritans find three sermons out of but God, you know, and that's, that's easy to do. But uh, it is, it, the book, I don't know how to explain it exactly. It started out that I really thought the emphasis was going to be on the first four verses and on the last two verses. On, on Jude's giving us his reason for writing this, and that reason being that, that there were false teachers that had slipped in, and while he wanted to talk about the common salvation that we all hold, that he felt this need, he felt this compulsion, that he must write and urge them and, and plead with them to contend for the faith once delivered to all the saints. And, and I thought that, and then the last part, that, that last two verses, that benediction that is so glorious and so great, I thought, well, you tie those two together and just kind of got a little filler in the middle, but I've come to realize that filler in the middle has as much meat or more than the other two ends. And so I continue to study, and God continues to teach me, and so what he teaches me, I hope I can teach to you. But these three verses today naturally fall together. Judas finished telling us what his purpose is. He, he's closed that out in verse 4 uh, and talking about these persons who've crept in unnoticed who, who are teaching false teaching very subtly, very quietly, very non-eventfully, but yet they're doing it and it's causing damage in the body. He, he, he's dealt with that. He's told us why he's writing. And then he says in verse 5, Now, now that we've got that out of the way, now, now I desire to remind you, to remind you. I, de I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. That's what the passage that Brother Scott read earlier is beginning the story of. That once God led a people out, God brought them out of slavery, brought them out of horrendous situations, and yet because they didn't believe him, even though they saw many miracles, many signs, many wonders, they didn't believe him, that he was going to do what he said he would do. They were disbelieving, unbelieving, and so God destroyed them, those who were unbelieving. Sounds like belief is going to be something Jude really wants us to understand and grasped clearly. Verse 6. And angels, not just people, but angels, who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Listen, even, even the angels that God created as his heavenly messengers, 
even the angels that God created, when they rebelled, when they left their proper abode, their proper authority, the word abode there has the connotation of authority, when they left their proper authority and decided to be more, uh, to exert more authority, then God did not tolerate them. He put them in eternal bonds and put them in darkness for judgment of that great day. So the people of Israel, the angels who rebelled, God did not look favorably upon. And then verse 7 says, and just as Sodom and Gomorrah, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh and exhibited as an example the undergoing or under, in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now wait a minute. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these... Are you meaning to tell me that Sodom and Gomorrah and all their gross, horrible, heinous immoralities, exchanging the, the proper function of the marital bed for that which is improper, I mean, things that we would find detestable and gross, are you telling me that those sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are really the same thing as the angels rebelling and the same thing as the people not believing? Yeah. Yeah, the sins are the same. And the sins are sort of a progressive thing here. We'll see in a minute when we look at this a little more in depth about belief that, that, that sin usually, no, no, sin always begins with unbelief. It always does. And so the sins of God, Sodom and Gomorrah, while they are gross to our thoughts even, they began not with just saying, hey, let's go out and have a party. Let's go out and just do these wild things. They started because they disbelieved. They did not believe God. They did not have faith. And when faith in God is not there, it is wide open doors to do whatever seems right in our own eyes. The thing Jude wants us to see is, and it's so important here, that belief is absolutely necessary. But it's not just belief in anything. There was an article yesterday in the Lexington Herald Leader. I don't know if you saw it or not, but it was, a, it was an article about, uh, about faith and faith in healing and faith in, in hospitals and there, that, that having faith and praying and having faith in that prayer is important. And the doctor who was talking about it made this statement. It, it doesn't matter what you have faith in just as long as you have faith. Jude would say to that in very theological terms, baloney. That, that's, that's just not true. What you have faith in is of unbelievable importance, of, of a tremendous magnitude. If your faith is placed in something that is not worthy of that faith, or if your faith is placed in something that, that really has no, no power to fulfill what you're believing, then, then in reality, just having faith, just believing, is of absolutely no value. Jude is saying your faith must be in the proper source. Your faith must be in the proper object. And that object is Jesus Christ, God through Jesus Christ. It's a faith that is found in looking to him, believing him, trusting him, walking with him. And that's the essence of salvation, isn't it? That's what Scripture says about salvation. It says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Confess with your mouth. In other words, say, I believe in Christ. 
we confuse it so much today. It's so simple. We, we throw in all these little cutesy things about, you know, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. I never find that in Scripture. You know, we throw in this, this formula, this sinner's prayer, and we say, oh, you have to pray this prayer, and if you pray this prayer and really mean it, then you'll be saved. I don't find the sinner's prayer anywhere in Scripture. What I find in Scripture is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have faith in Jesus Christ. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. And, and he will save you. I mean, it's, it's just that clear in Scripture. And we cloud it up and, and mess it up and, and kind of try to come up with cutesy little ways of saying it. And those cutesy little ways of saying it many times are mis- misleading and deceptive. Believe in the Lord. Have faith. And Jude says here the problem with the Israelites, the problem with the angels, and the problems in Sodom and Gomorrah was that they did not believe God, period. They didn't believe. And because they didn't believe, God had no part of them. God cut them off. God abandoned them. God put them in eternal darkness, in bonds, in bondage. The scriptures are filled with examples that we should that should serve to remind us of various spiritual truths throughout the scripture and Jude is concerned that that these people may turn from the truth follow false teachers and and fall into sin and and Jude wants to make one thing absolutely crystal clear and if you don't leave here with anything else today, I hope you'll leave here with this understanding and this thought. And that is simply this. No one is allowed to sin. Well, of course I'm allowed to sin. I, I sin all the time. And so somehow, somewhere, I'm allowed to sin. No, no, you're not allowed to sin. You're not given a license from God to sin. Grace is not saying, okay, you are now saved by grace. Go and sin and have the time of your life. No, you're not given permission. You're not allowed to sin. None of us are exempt from God's moral law. None of us are exempt from the commands of Christ. We are saved to obey. We're not saved to sin. Now, we do sin. We talked about that. We'll talk about that a whole lot more because we still do fall into sin. We still do disbelieve God on on so many occasions for so many reasons, so many things. But I want you to understand that no one is given a license to do that. Not a preacher, not an evangelist, not a theology professor, and not a member of Grace Baptist Church or any other church that's a true church of Jesus Christ. So Jude begins by simply saying, I want to remind you, I desire above everything else to remind you of these things that are important. Reminding is important. Thomas Manton, that Puritan I was talking about earlier that has kind of messed up my schedule just a bit, Thomas Manton said this. He said, you know, a major role of the pastor is to remind people. And I do that all the time. I tell you things as we're studying that I know you know. You know, I tell you the basics of the Christian faith, and many of you have been Christians for years and years and years, and you know that, but, but the Scripture seems to indicate that we need to be reminded. And Manton said that the, the, the pastor's major role is to remind people, and he said there's a twofold reminder involved in that. The first one is that the pastor's call to remind God of the needs of the people. 
Now, we know God doesn't need to be reminded. God knows what our needs are. But, but basically what he's saying there is the pastor's role in reminding God is bringing before God the needs of his people, what we would call intercession, that the pastor should be and ought to be praying for his people. That's important. But the second part, and really the part I want us to concentrate on today, is that the pastor's major role re involves reminding the people of God's nature, the riches of his grace, the need for obedience, and the many dangers that lie in wait for the Christian on the way to heaven. I don't know if you've ever read the great Christian classic Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, written hundreds of years ago, and it's an allegory. And, and Christian is the main character who's become a Christian, and he's working his way toward the wicked gate to get into the heavenly city. And all along the way, I mean, he has the slough of despond, and he has all sorts of, of traps and tricks and dangers that lie in wait. And every one of those describes a, a danger that you and I face. It's a great allegory. Get a modern language version and read it. Don't read Bunyan's original. You'll read three pages and say, I don't have any idea what he said in that Queen's English. But the truth is there. That we live in a day where we have things that, that are lying in wait to destroy us and, and that as a pastor, my responsibility is from time to time to spend time reminding you because that's what I should do and that's what the New Testament writers did. Let me give you a few examples. Paul writing to Timothy, he says uh, in 1 Timothy 4, 6, he said, in pointing out these things to the brethren, You'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That is, if you remind them, point it out to them. Constantly nourishing on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Paul said, Timothy, teach them sound doctrine. And when you teach them sound doctrine, remind them of that sound doctrine. When you teach them the words of the faith, that is the word of God, remind them of what you've taught them later on down the road, what they've been taught. I mean, it's a, it's a matter of reminding to the Romans, Paul said this, he said in, verse, in chapter 15, he said, but I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. We need to be reminded of God's grace. Uh, you know, it's very important that we be reminded that grace is not just what we get when we're saved. Grace is not just that, for you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's important, and that grace is, is, is critical, but we need God's grace every day of our walk with him. And so grace is not just for the beginning, it's for the whole Christian life, and, and, and we need to be reminded of that. Paul says the Romans re remind them. 2 Timothy 2.14 says, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Remind them to so concentrate on the solid food of God's word, not wrangling about words all the time. Or 2 Peter 1, Peter says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, which have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, that is his body, to stir you up by the way of reminder. You know, the writer of Ecclesiastes says there's, there's nothing new under the heaven. And so when I come to preach to you on Sunday morning to teach you God's word, I don't come to bring you something new. I don't try to work all week and say, man, I've got to come up with something novel. 
I got to really be clever this Sunday. I just want to bring you God's word. And, and basically, that'll be reminding you of what God has taught us, what God has said, and what you've already heard. But it might serve to stir you up, Peter says, by way of reminder. John quoting Jesus in, in John 14, 26, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Basically, the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is, uh, uh, is to apply salvation, obviously, apply the grace, but then in the Christian life, the Holy Spirit is to serve as a reminder to remind you of all the things that Jesus said. What Jude is wanting to do here in these three verses in reminding them is to show them the importance of belief and the heinousness, if you will, of unbelief. Indeed, unbelief is the root of all sin and all misfortune as in, in believers' lives just as it was in the Israelites' life, lives. The, the passage that Scott read earlier out of Numbers 14, that last verse he read, verse 11, he said, The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? He said, God, is, God is God, and God knows all things, but even God is expressing himself here just a little perplexed. I could go back and recount all the miracles, all the signs that God did when he, when he sent the plagues to, to Egypt to get Pharaoh to let him go. I could recount the coming through the Red Sea and how it parted and the people went through and then it uh, closed back down and, and drowned all the Israelites. I could recount how the manna was provided every day for food in the wilderness. I mean, the, the presence of God, the power of God, the provision of God is so clear. And if they get out in the promised land and they see some big people and, and get a little scared and they say, well, we just want to go back to Egypt and die. Oh, Lord, just, just let us, Moses, Aaron, you're, you're leading us astray. We're going over here in, in, in the promised land that God has promised, but, but it's just too tough. Just let us go back to Egypt and die. Earlier they said, besides, we had garlic and leeks and onions there. And all we got here is this manna. I mean, he grumbled and complained. Because they did not believe God. Jude, if anything, is wanting his hearers to understand the seriousness of unbelief. And if anything, what I want you to leave here seeing today is the seriousness of unbelief. Not in the Israelites, not in the people to whom Jude was writing, but the seriousness of unbelief in your life, in my life in the life of our church. Several things I want to look at and just kind of quickly go over about unbelief. Five or six things that I think will help, five things, which will help us to, to think about this this coming week as, as Jude is, is emphasizing it with the, with the most serious circumstances. Egypt, promised land, angels, Sodom and Gomorrah. First thing we need to understand in our own lives is that no sin dishonors God as much as unbelief. No sin dishonors God as much as unbelief. When we fail to believe, it calls into question his mercy, his grace, his power, his justice, and especially his truth. 
Jesus, uh, John, speaking in, in 1 John 5.10, John says, The one who does not believe God has made God a liar. Now, now, now think about that for a minute. The one who does not believe God in what he has said, in his truth, in his provisions, in his grace, the one who does not believe God and distrusts God, basically looks at God and says, God, I think you're a liar. I don't think you're telling the truth. I think this has all been made up. I mean, why, why would we think that we could believe you, God? It calls into question everything about the glorious character of Christ. I think that's why Paul said to the Philippian Christians, don't worry about anything, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. Let your requests be made known unto God. Don't worry about these things. Pray about these things. Trust God. God has promised to meet your every need. God has promised to carry you through any situation he brings you into. God has promised to watch over you and to provide you with his presence. Don't worry about stuff. Pray about stuff. Because to pray is to trust. To, to worry is to distrust. Worry is unbelief. Worry is a statement that, God, I'd, I'd like to believe you could handle this situation, but I just can't believe it. So no sin dishonors God more than unbelief because sin calls into question everything about his nature, everything about his character when we disbelieve him, unbelief. Secondly, God himself has declared that he is not pleased with unbelief. If I could... Draw back to Hebrews for just a moment. You'll remember this in Hebrews 11. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, perhaps Luke, said this statement in, in 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Well, let me make that a little clearer. If you don't believe him, you can't please him. He's not pleased with your attending church. He's not pleased with your, with your, your do-goodism. He's not pleased with you trying harder. What he's pleased with is when you trust him. What he's pleased with is when you believe him and that honors him. Romans 11, tw uh, 20, talking about the Israelites that, that, that rejected the Messiah. He says they were broken off, not for their immorality, they were broken off for their unbelief. There's nothing that Christ rebuked his disciples for any more than unbelief. Do you realize that? You don't find him saying, boy, you blew it trying to share the, share the gospel with these people. You, you blew it when you went out and, and couldn't cast out demons. That was not what they were rebuked for. They were always rebuked by Christ for their lack of faith, for their unbelief. Uh, in, in Luke chapter 20. Four, in verse 25, he said, And Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And he went on to talk about his resurrection there. And he said, Y'all can't, you, you won't even accept the fact that resurrection can take place. I'm going to show you it'll take place, but you don't believe now. You won't believe the prophets. You won't believe it when, I hap when it happens. Or Matthew 8, 26, when Jesus said to them, talking to his disciples now. They're out on the sea. Remember the storm is tossing everywhere and, and they're scared and they're crying out and they don't know what's going to happen. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O men of little faith? That's what he rebuked them for. It was unbelief. Not having faith in what, who he is and what he can do. Third thing that 
I think Jude would want us to see here, and he does it by that progression that we can see, and then saying they're all just alike, is that unbelief is the mother of all sin. Unbelief is what spawns all other sin. Uh, you know, think about back to the first sin. Back in the Garden of Eden, in the fall, it was not so much that Adam and Eve just decided they were going to disobey God, but first Satan came to them and he questioned God's authority and he questioned God's character and he questioned God's goodness. And he said, you mean to tell me God said you can't eat of any of this fruit in the garden? And they said, oh, no, 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 we can eat all of it except that one tree right in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, 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 and Satan said, well, <laughs> why did he tell you you can't have that food, that fruit? Oh, he said, if we eat of that, we'll die. You can almost hear Satan smirking. <laughs> did he really say that? Did, did God really tell you you would die if you eat that food? Well, you know, God's trying to pull one over on you. Because God knows if you eat of that fruit, you're not going to die, but you're going to be like him. You're going to be just like him. And so Satan got Adam and Eve to disbelieve in the goodness of God. They, they had seen the power of God in all that had been created, even in creating themselves, him creating them. But yet, Satan was able to put a little bit of disbelief, a little lack of faith, a little distrust in God. And when that took place, the fall followed. The very first sin was the fruit of unbelief. Fourthly, unbelief is really clear evidence of lostness, of, of never trusting Christ to begin with. Now, I don't mean short periods of struggling. We all have those. But a consistency of life that does not trust God in the issues of life, a consistency of life that worries about it and, and takes everything on themselves and thinks, boy, if it's to be, it's up to me. If I don't do it, it's not going to happen and doesn't trust God is really clear evidence of lostness. Now, that's not Bill Haynes talking. That's Jesus talking. In John chapter 10, Jesus looked at the people and said, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. The reason you have unbelief, the reason you don't believe, is because you don't belong to me anyway. You're lost. Or Acts 13, 48, when, when Luke is writing that history of the church, he said when the, uh, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God, and as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. Unbelief is evidence of lostness. Belief, trust, faith is evidence of eternal life. And, and so Jesus was very, very careful, and so is Jude here, to say, listen, I want to remind you, you're to believe God, not other things. You're to believe God, not false prophets. You're to believe God, not false teachers. You're to remember what God has done. I'm reminding you all that God has done so that you may walk with him. Why? Because the final thing. Unbelief is a sin that deprives us of the goodness of God's providence in our lives. Unbelief is a sin that deprives us of knowing the goodness of God's providence in our lives. Mark 6. Mark 6, 5 and 6 says, He could not do any miracles there. Talking about Jesus. Except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. 
And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Went to a town. The intention of blessing that town with his presence and with, with demonstrating his power as, a, as the Messiah. He said he was amazed at their lack of faith. Or John eleven forty, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Of God? Jesus is saying the same thing to you and me. If, if, you would, if you would believe, you will see the glory of God in your life, in your church. If you believe, you will see his manifestation of his glory. You will, you will, you will understand and, and revel in his, his presence. Because if you believe, it's an acknowledgement that you are who you are. Again, Hebrews said that we who come to him must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who trust him. And, and so the, the concept of unbelief in the life of a believer is, is really kind of, kind of a, a misnomer. It's, it's kind of an oxymoron. Well, I, I trust Jesus for salvation, but I don't believe him for the rest of my life. I trust him to give me a home in heaven when I die, but I don't trust him to handle that financial problem or to, or to handle that marital problem or to handle that, 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 that problem with, with work. I, I, just, I just can't see how he can work in that. Oh, gee, I trust you to save me, but I don't see how you can help here. It's inconsistent. I would dare say that the tougher part of the problem would be getting you to heaven than it would be to help you to little minute detail down here. And we talk about trusting for that. We don't talk about trusting for every area, every dimension of our life. Jude says, I desire to remind you that when the children of Israel did not believe, they were destroyed. When the angels ceased believing in the authority of God, they were cast out. When Sodom and Gomorrah would not believe God, but did what was right in their own eyes and what they desired, regardless of what God said, then they were destroyed and served as an exhibit, as an example of what it's like to undergo the punishment of eternal fire. I mean, that's pretty serious stuff for unbelief, isn't it? God has called us to believe. The prophet Habakkuk, prophet Habakkuk and the, and, and, and the apostle Paul quoting Habakkuk in Romans chapter 1 is that verse that is open and underlined or highlighted in that box that's been sitting here for several weeks and be put in the slab out there next week. In, in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and then the Gentile. For the scripture says, Paul says, the scripture says the just man, the man who has, or woman who has justness in their life, who walk in the justness of God and who have been given the, the righteousness of Christ, the just man, the righteous man, the righteous woman, shall live by what? Faith. Not by works. Not by deeds. 
I mean, that was the verse that Martin Luther grabbed hold of and it spawned the whole Protestant Reformation when all of a sudden he had been functioning within the confines of, uh, of the, the Roman church at that day. And the Roman church believed in faith, but they believed in faith plus works. If you didn't have the works, the faith was no good, and they had to go hand in hand. And, and Luther came to the Scripture and said, no, the, 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 it's simple. It, it's so easy. It's so ridiculously clear that the righteous man, the righteous woman, the just man, the just woman shall live by faith. It's faith that pleases God. It's faith that honors God. It's trust that, that glorifies the Father in your life and in the life of this church. I walked through some of our faith this past week over on Oak Leaf Lane. We have trusted God. We have believed God. And God has provided. And, you know, I just, I, I walked and I just, I wept one day. I, I just thought, this is... God, you're too good to us. And, and I, I, we don't deserve this. And we don't. You're, you're good to us. And, and you, you bless us, not because we're good people, but because we trusted you. Because we believed you. Because we believe that you are who you say you are. You can do what you say you can do. And your truth is truth. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, it's true truth. A little redundant, but important to realize. That doesn't mean works won't follow. Matter of fact, James says, you know, work, faith without works is dead. Not that the works get you the faith or add to the faith. They don't. But when you have faith in Christ, when you walk with him, you don't do like the people of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and going to the promised land. You don't do like the angels and usurp your own authority. You don't do like Sodom and Gomorrah and go following after the sins of the flesh. No. When you trust him, works, obedience, truth will flow out of your life as a byproduct of the faith. Those works don't make your faith your faith brings about those works. It's the glory of the gospel. It's the glory of God's word. It's the glory of who he is. And he is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of belief. Let's pray. Father Jude recognizes the seriousness of unbelief. And he reminds his people what is the result of unbelief. And Lord, I ask you this day to remind us that belief, faith, is evidence that we are in Christ. 
And if we are in Christ, we're joint heirs with Christ. If we're in Christ, we are your adopted children. If we are in Christ, you care about every minute detail of our life. If we are in Christ, we are children, not slaves. Although we are slaves of Christ. Lord, we are yours if we are in Christ. And I ask you, Lord, just to remind us this morning of all that that means. If we're here and believers. Father, I ask you to work in the lives of anyone here who's not a Christian. I ask you, Lord, to send your Holy Spirit to bring conviction, to treat them, O oh Lord, as you did Lydia, and open their eyes and their heart to see and believe. I ask you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to draw them to Christ. I ask you, Father, to save them, redeem them, and be glorified in it. Father, it is in you we trust because you are the only one worthy of trust. Teach us. Draw us. Change us. And lead us, O oh Lord, to believe you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.